Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the centrality of the cross. And Lord, so often we focus on the fact that it's the power of the cross that has changed our lives. But help us to realize that the cross is central in all of your work. Even the work of creation, Lord. The vision of the cross, the coming cross, the work of the cross. And the work of the one upon the cross has been central. We thank you for that. We thank you that this work of the cross has changed our lives and given us access into your presence. We thank you for the grace you've poured out upon us to make us your children and to leave in our hands your word so that we can learn about you and about your son and about ourselves from your word. We thank you for the light that you cast on our lives and our hearts. And I pray so that every, as we read your word, whether it's publicly or privately, that our lives will always be changed every time we open your word. We pray for your grace this morning, in Jesus' name, and for his sake alone. Amen. This morning we continue with our uh, series, um, which is preaching through distinctives that we are teaching in this church, and this morning... As you see from your bulletin, the title of the sermon is What We Teach About Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And uh, it's a big subject, but nonetheless, we will pay attention to it this morning and see how we can get through it in our allotted time. Seldom has there been a single question that has caused more um, anger more confusion, and has shown up the cracks in society. That simple question is, what is a woman? The answer we get to this question would have been unthinkable a few years ago. The way people fail to be able to explain what a woman is is astounding. It's a question we'd have asked a few years back of a five-year-old child and got a very clear answer. And in fact, if you leave kids to themselves, they will give you an answer very quickly. Yet from TV hosts to university professors to medical and legal professionals, this seems to be the most complex and, un- and unanswerable question of all time. There just is no answer. John Piper, who together with Wayne Grudem, edited a book called Biblical or Recovering Biblical Manhood and Humanhood, poses this question long before Matt Walsh did. But he poses the question in a more significant way. We ask the question in this way. What does it mean to be a man and not a woman? Or, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? The answer to what is a woman can be reduced to a simple biological response. And while the biological response would be correct, it would be overly simple and not quite enough. The question posed by Piper forces the respondent to think a little bit more deeply, to think beyond a biological definition, and drives him to consider the essence and the function of a person, whether it's a man or a woman. The answer to the question about womanhood and manhood has to include the purpose of being innately and immutably either a man, a male and masculine, or being a woman, female and feminine. Recognize you're either one or the other. There's nothing in between. The answer has to include how each role is defined by the binary components locked in place by creation by the divine designer. The answer can make no accommodation for a spectrum of genders. The answer must be predicated on a divinely established reality that the Lord God made the man out of the dust of the earth, and then he made the woman from living tissue taken from the side of the man. The answer must recognize that the man and woman created by God were more than a collection of cells and bones and muscle and skin. The very definition of what it means to be a man or a woman and how to function as a man or a woman is more than something that is merely skin deep. It resides in the very spiritual constitution of every man and every woman. It resides in the irrefutable fact that God created the man and the woman 
in the image of God, male and female, he created them. This is why simply changing the shape of a person's sex organs does not change the sex of the person. We heard that last week. And Don mentioned how that identification of self or self-identification is not only a sin, it doesn't change it, doesn't change anything. This is why, no matter how much you brutalize the external physiology of a man, men cannot fall pregnant. Men cannot gestate. Men, men cannot ovulate. Men cannot breastfeed. Get that into our heads. It's an impossibility. No matter how much you surgically reorganize external features of a woman so that she can impersonate a man, she will always be a woman with congenital attributes that can never be changed, like having XX chromosomes or having a child-bearing pelvic structure. The things you'll never change, no matter what you do, no matter what you use. Many women were created differently to function differently. So that the cooperation between their binary natures would fulfill the plan of the creator for mankind as they complement each other in every sphere of their life. We cannot go through all that this subject encompasses, but I will this morning focus on four areas as we look at the role of men and women, or as in manhood and womanhood, and how it impacts us specifically today. And my sermon will have four sections, which I'll try and get through as quick as I can. And as clear as I can, uh, number one, designed by God. Number two, distorted by sin. Number three, defined for the church. Number four, demonstrated in marriage. Designed by God. I'm going to try to start these sections with a, a propositional statement. Here's the first one. Biblical manhood and womanhood were designed by God and fixed at creation. I'm going to read a portion of God's word. You can turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It's going to be a lengthy reading. It'll be the only lengthy reading this morning, but I think it's essential we read this portion because everything that we teach about womanhood and manhood comes back to this portion of God's word. This is seminal in understanding how God expects and has created us to function as men and women. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it and have dominion over it. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 tells us what God did. Genesis chapter 2 tells us how God did what he did. Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. (coughs) Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought him to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But Adam, or for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man, and, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a human, and brought it to the man. And then the man said, after he woke up out of his uh, sleep, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
May God bless us this portion of his word and anything else that we will be quoting or referring to as we understand what is God's design for manhood and womanhood. When God created man and woman, he created them with certain aspects that we have to take note of. First of all, they were created equal. Yes, there is a clear equality between men and women from the moment they were created. They were created equally in the image of God. They were equal image bearers of the, of the Creator, chapter 1, verses 26-27 of Genesis. And by nature of that image-bearing quality that they each had, they were also equally uh, responsible for dominion over God's creation. And he said to them, have dominion. And so the equality we see right from the beginning of time with the very first parents of the human race, when we see when they were created, they were created on an equal level at this level. This was a non-physical equality. This wasn't something that could be seen from the outside. This was what, this is what defined them in a spiritual way. They were image bearers, and because they were image bearers equally, they were equally authorized to have dominion over God's creation. But they also created distinctly different. That gives us a rise to the phrase equal but different. A phrase which sits in the craw of evangelical feminists. They hate that phrase. But they were created not only equally but also distinctly different. They were distinct from each other in several ways. They were created at different times. Adam was first created and then Eve. And that's not an insignificant fact because Paul mentions it twice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And later on in one of these last epistles to Timothy, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so that sequence is significant enough for Paul to mention it at least twice quite clearly. And it's, it, it pervades the understanding of why man is recognized as head of woman. This is one of the reasons why he was, he was made first and she was made thereafter. They are different in other ways. He was made from the ground. He was made from soil. She was made from a part of his, his body. The Bible says a rib from his side. Into him, God breathed the breath of life. God didn't breathe the breath of life into Eve because she was made from living material. And whatever was part of Adam, what made Adam a living being, was passed on to Eve. Physiologically, they were different. He was male. She was female. And if you were able to look at them in the garden, you'd notice the difference right away. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't concealed. It wasn't hard to, to see. When he woke up out of his God-induced uh, sleep, he recognized this one as very different to himself. He, 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 he composed a poem to, as he recognizes that this one that God has given him is astoundingly different to himself. The distinctiveness of their manhood and womanhood was divinely determined by God. And this distinction is critical in three ways. In an essential sense, in a general sense, in a personal sense. Or we could say that this distinction is evident in the reproduction, in the roles they play, and in the relationship. In the reproduction, it's required that a male and a female have to have a relationship to produce offspring. Two men cannot produce babies. Two women cannot produce babies. That's the way God designed the human race. It requires a man and a woman to be able to have a relationship, a physical one, so that, the, that, so that from, from them they can come a, a child. Even the LGBTQ community understands this. And they will try and have a family and they will seek to find sperm either donated or, or in some other way, but they even know that it's one thing they cannot do. They cannot produce children. It flies in the face of evolution when this is what they believe, is that uh, they can, they're going through an evolutionary process by being men married to men and women married to women. It's a new evolutionary process of mankind. 
It flies in the face of what they actually say they believe. But it definitely flies in the face of creation. It requires a male and a female, distinctly different sexes, to produce a baby. They were distinct in the roles, and this is evident in marriage, and in the church, and elsewhere in society. The comment that we read in Corinthians, or the truth that Christ is head of man, and man is head of woman, and, and we see that and say, well, that man is head of the wife, uh, Christ is head of the man, and God is head of Christ. Yes, the husband is the head of the wife, and we're going to show that. But in a general sense, men are the head of women. In a general sense, in God's creation, in God's plan, men would have always been the head of women. Thirdly, the distinction is seen in the relationship. The relationship, Adam and Eve, uh, fulfills a divine equation where one plus one equals one. Doesn't make sense to us. Doesn't make sense to the kids sitting here, but the divine equation says one man plus one woman equals one flesh. And that is at the core of our understanding of manhood and womanhood and how that affects the way we live. Not only were they distinct um, in the way God created them, not only did he also create them on an equal basis, but he created them with a complementarian component to the relationship. She was created as his helper. She was his companion. She was created for man. And again in Corinthians, Paul says this in chapter 11, verse 19 of the first epistle. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was created for man. On the other hand, he was a protector. He was a provider. God created him to be the one who provides her with protection and with uh, all that she needs as a husband does for his wife. And even though Adam never had a mother or a father, and although Eve never had a mother and were a father's principle of him being her protector and she being his helper is built into, into that phrase which we have, which says, or that verse which says, uh, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they become one flesh. That was made, Moses inspired to write that as part of Adam and Eve's life before there was any mother and father on the face of the earth where they had become a mother or a father. So the perfect model of man and humanhood is seen in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. However, that did not last forever. It became distorted by sin. Which brings us to our second section of our sermon this morning. And here is our prepositional uh, comment. Biblical manhood and humanhood have been distorted by sin and deformed by the role of reversal. Role reversal is a situation in which two people have chosen or been forced to exchange their duties and responsibilities so that each is now doing what the other used to do, what the other is supposed to do. For example, the most extreme example of role reversal is when men become house husbands. Defies uh, all logic. Men stay at home. They take on the role of a mother. Uh, the wife goes to work and supports the husband. She becomes a dominant leading figure in the home. He stays home, cleans house, looks after the kids, and if it was possible, he would breastfeed the baby. But he can't. He's a man. And he's in a role that's not defined for him. And so that role reversal flies in the face of God's intention for men and women. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 says this, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took, it, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. And right there in the judgment on this woman in the garden after sin had infiltrated God's creation, right there embedded into God's judgment is the horror of this reversal of roles that God had 
originally created for them to have. The events of Genesis 3 affects all creation. Understand clearly that when Genesis 3 played out, and when sin entered into man and woman, when they became sinners, not only they were affected, but all of creation was affected. Creation itself uh, was impacted by the sin that came in via the man and the woman. Romans chapter 8 verse 22 says this, For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in pains of childbirth until now. Creation has been impacted by a single cosmic altering act. An act that came in to a place that was up until then devoid of any evidence of sin until the serpent came into the garden, beguiled the woman, deceived her, she fell, gave to her husband and he fell, and the entire creation, that up until that point God has said was very good, became distorted by sin. And in the garden, God pronounces judgment on all three involved in plunging the human race into sin. Satan, looking from the perspective of chapter 3 of Genesis, Satan will face future judgment as he will be crushed by the seed of the woman. The man immediately is condemned to now earn his bread by hard and torturous labor instead of enjoying his work with bliss as originally designed. Working with our hands is not a result of the fall. It's an outcome of creation. But that working with our hands, which should have been blissful and joyful, and as an act of worship to God, now becomes a drudgery, torturous, painful, part of God's condemnation of man, because he listened to his wife, took off the fruit that she offered him, and plunged the entire human race into sin. But the judgment on the woman does not affect her alone. It includes her husband also. From this moment onwards, instead of being a helper fit for him, her overwhelming desire will be to overpower her husband. Her desire will be against him. Sister, when you wake up in the morning and plan to do everything you can for your husband, but by midday you want to throttle him, Genesis 3 is kicking in. You want to make him do things he doesn't want to do? Genesis 3 is kicking in. So beware. Uh, there is a way out of that, but this was a judgment brought upon the human race as God judges this human. But he doesn't judge her alone. Inextricably coupled to this judgment is the change in the husband's attitude towards her. For from this time forward, the responsibility to be protected and provider will be replaced by a drive to dominate and subjugate her. That lies at the heart of all the horror, chaos, abuse you see in married uh, families and couples today. The wife trying to dominate and change her husband, trying to overpower him, trying to rise above him, and him trying to beat him into subjection. And something that gets way beyond just psychological abuse. It becomes physical in many homes. And spousal abuse does not know gender. Spousal abuse can be man and woman or woman and man and equally is destructive and the antithesis of what God has designed for men and women in marriage. The reversal of the roles of the man and the woman became embedded in the judgment imposed upon them by the Lord God. And in Genesis 3 verse 20 we read this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This role reversal embedded in the judgment of God has played the human race ever since. And it's ironic that uh, it's at this point in time that Adam actually names his wife. After sin had settled in, after she had been the, the, um, the, the avenue through which he falls, and eventually she's given a name. Right there, in chapter 3, verse 20, he calls his wife Eve. He did not name her when she was overcome, when he was overcome by her astounding beauty as he came out of a divinely induced sedation. He didn't name her while she was while he was exercising dominion over the fish and the birds and the animals. It is after he had failed to protect her from the serpent, after he took from her hand that which was forbidden to eat. It was after he and the woman that God had given him experienced spiritual death. That he finally named his wife. 
He calls his wife's name Eve, the mother who gives life. And the irony of naming his wife Eve or Eve after they died should not be missed. Now that they are dead in their sin, he calls her life. The meaning of, of Eve, uh, it's in, in, the, in the original language, it sounds like life. Uh, and so he called her life. He names her life at the point when they had both died in sin. Irony, ironic. Uh, and indeed, there's a reason for that. And so we see chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 is highly significant for understanding the critical requirement for men to be men and women to be women, for men to be husbands and for women to be wives, and how that becomes possible and real in the life of every believer. It should be real in every uh, married union, but it is definitely essential to be seen in the life of every believer. Adam had heard the judgment that God passed onto the serpent. Central to that judgment, critical to that judgment, was the promised seed of the woman. By naming his wife Eve, or life, Adam revealed his expectation of a child yet to be born. When God said, Adam, dying, we shall die, I'm not sure what Adam expected. I'm not sure what he expected to fall down stone dead the moment he did something, he ate on the tree. But he had died. And in that dying, although he was breathing air and sitting under God's sun and eating of the, the, the food in front of him, Adam had nonetheless died. And yet, there was an expectation of a coming child. And that child could only be born if the mother of living provided life to subsequent descendants until a teenage Hebrew virgin gives birth to a son, the one who would crush the serpent's head. Verse 20 is clearly a continuation of the proto-evangelion that's put forth in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. There's a continuation here of God's plan despite the fact that his perfect creation had been marred by sin, God was not caught flat-footed. God was not caught by surprise. God did not put out plan B and try and have a contingency in place in case something went wrong. God was fully prepared. God remained sovereign and holy and fully aware of what was taking place and what would take place. And in all of that, to fulfill his purposes so that he could ultimately be worshipped as the only uncreated being, there is the promise of a coming son. Right when they were dead, he calls his wife Eve, the mother of living, ultimately, that through her and women that come from her loins, there would be a savior. Verse 20 ensures the coming of a future savior. And, unfold, and verse 21 unfolds the means by which salvation will be provided. It says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothes, and clothing. An animal had to die, so that his king could provide a permanent covering for Abram and Eve. These verses perfectly anticipate the final work of redemption on the cross. We cannot lose sight of the work of the cross when it comes to the way we live day by day. We want to live as men and women, but we cannot live as men and women glorifying to God without understanding that the work of the cross is central in bringing that about. An animal had to die so that the skin could provide a permanent covering for Adam and Eve. These verses perfectly anticipate the final work of redemption on the cross. How is this significant to our sermon? How does this impact our understanding of what is womanhood and manhood as God created them? Christ redeems to himself a bride purchased with his own blood and covered by his own righteousness. In this we see how a loving, faithful groom, Christ, cares for his bride, the church. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word, that he might present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that he might be holy, that she might be holy, and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25, 27, and that portion tells us so clearly that the picture that we have that should be replicated in the life of a husband and a wife as a living for God is that of Christ and the church. It is a relevant link. He died for the church. He gave himself for her so that she could be brought into a place of splendor so he could present her to himself. The distortion that sin brought about in man on man and womanhood is removed by the work of Christ. Without Christ, that distortion remains entrenched, embedded, and destructive. 
without the work of Christ in the lives of men and women, they can never fully comprehend what it means to be truly like Christ and the church. It's exactly because we see in the relationship between Christ and his church a restoration of the principle of loving leadership together with faithful loving submission that the church must be the one place that clearly defines and exemplifies what godly manhood and godly womanhood looks like. If it doesn't look like that here, then it looks like that nowhere else. Which comes, which brings us to our third section of this morning's sermon, defined in the church. And here is my propositional statement for this section. Biblical manhood and womanhood have been recovered through redemption so that in Christ, they function as God designed as they obey his revealed will in the scripture. Biblical manhood and womanhood have been recovered through redemption so that in Christ they function as God designed as they obey his revealed will in the scripture. The word of God has now been challenged in many ways in every generation. There's never been a time since the scriptures have been uh, given to mankind, whether it was in the, in the building of the canon through the, uh, through the epistles, right to where we now have a completed canon, the Bible has been challenged by every generation, um, at every level, in every aspect. The times we are now living in is no different. And as before, there are those who claim to have a better perspective at what particular texts mean. Meaning that some have been missed or misconstrued for 2,000 years by the church. That is an arrogant position to hold. To think that not only were the original writers wrong in some aspects because they challenged them, not only were the early church fathers mistaken in many areas, and historically for 2,000 years the church has not seen things as clearly and as crisply as we see it today. Some are 2,000 years of church history got it all wrong. Somehow we have failed to understand what Paul really meant. Somehow allowing Patrick, we somehow have allowed patriarchy to dominate the church. Somehow we have managed to keep women out of leadership roles because we have misinterpreted scripture. It's time for this generation to wake up. Feminism has forcibly inserted itself into evangelicalism. And as we look at how this is being challenged, we realize that this is what they do. Understand clearly feminism or evangelical feminism does what every other anti-biblical group has done. They start picking at the scripture. They start taking portions and making it sound different. They start taking things out of context. And when we hear it, we start thinking, well, that sounds almost right. Be careful. If scripture doesn't sound entirely right, be careful. It's either entirely right or not right at all. But when it sounds sort of part right and, 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 and kind of maybe right, well, guess what? We read Genesis chapter 3, didn't we? That's how it started. And a slight twisting of the word and a slight misconstruing of what God said and something gets misapplied and we all sit in the air as sinners. The word's either taken as it is, entirely as it has been inspired, Entirely as God has preserved it down to the age, and we must take the word as we must we need to wake up as the church when it comes to dealing with things like evangelical feminism, the woke brigade, uh, social justice uh, uh, evangelism, and anything that smacks of something that is not clearly and entirely biblical. Feminism has forcibly inserted itself into evangelicalism. And it is determined to bring about change. Do not be casual about your perception of evangelical feminism. It is as insidious as any virus known to man, but harmful in more ways than we can fully comprehend. Evangelical feminists are not satisfied with simply being recognized. They want to change the way you and I think. We need to have a different perspective of what the scriptures actually mean when it speaks about men and women. And maybe, just maybe they say, you got it all wrong. Maybe, just maybe, you don't understand Paul. In fact, maybe Paul got it wrong. Maybe Paul was too much of a human hater. And so, this virus runs deep, it runs far, and the only vaccination is Jesus Christ. That's the only one you should be taking, by the way. 
Excuse my uh, little bit of a sideline. This is the way Wayne Grudem, in his book Evangelical, uh, Liber- Liber- Evangelical Liberalism, uh, says this. Many prominent evangelical feminist writers today advocate positions that deny or undermine the authority of Scripture. And many, are, many other egalitarian leaders, that egalitarian are, uh, speaks to the philosophy that we are all equal. There's no difference, there's no head or, head or submission, we are all the same and deserve the same things in every way. And many other egalitarian leaders endorse their books and take no public stance against those who deny the authority of Scripture. Recent trends now show that evangelical feminists are heading toward the denial of anything uniquely masculine, and some already endorse calling God our mother God. The history of others who have adopted these positions shows that the next step is endorsement of the moral legitimacy of homosexuality. The common thread running through all of these trends is a rejection of the effective authority of Scripture in people's lives. And that this is the bedrock principle of theological liberalism. Wayne Grudem predicted that from evangelical feminism, you go through the uh, window and doorway of homosexuality and end up at theological liberalism. This was written in the year 2006. He's proven to be prophetical in what he's written. Six years later, Wayne Grudem is spot on. Today, with the outcome of theological liberalism has been seen in the increasing number of women installed at the head of churches. And we are talking about church life and how it's impacted by the failure to see God's uh, design for men and women. An increasing number of women installed at the head of churches as the primary teacher of the scripture to men and women in the congregation. And many of those who installed as female Leaders in churches are installed, though they are lesbians. And so this sin and this distortion and this disconnection from uh, publicity has invaded the church. And if you want to just simply Google how many churches uh, do, uh, do this kind of ordination, it's astounding when you see not only how long it's been going on for, but how far which it is, now entrenched it is in a number, it's almost not a denomination, <coughs> it escapes this uh, virus. This is a total break from what Paul teaches when writing to Timothy, and he says, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, <laughs> let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Back to Genesis chapter 3. And you cannot move away from those seminal verses, those critical verses in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and try and make sense of how we ought to live today. It doesn't take a degree in theology to understand what this text means in 1 Timothy 2. This meaning is plain to any Christian willing to accept God's word. A woman must learn quietly and with submission, in submissiveness. This does not mean she cannot open her mouth. We are not saying, show up and shut up. We've never said that. We've never taught that. How else would she be able to sing psalms and spiritual songs with the rest of the church? How should she be able to participate rightfully in prayer? The point is not that she's instructed to submit to those authors to teach and thereby, sorry, the point is, is that she's instructed to submit to those authors to teach and thereby learn without causing a disturbance. This word being silent um, is a word which means to conduct herself in the church 
that she doesn't cause conflict and become a disturbance and become a hindrance to what is intended for her and for the rest of the church. This is further supported by 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul writes this, as in all the churches of the saints, as in all the churches of the saints, I'm saying it as in all the churches of the saints. The reason I'm repeating that is one of the ploys played by the evangelical feminist movement and others who are egalitarian is that what was written by Paul to Timothy in relation to Ephesus um, and to Corinthians in relation to Corinth, to Corinth was specific for their cultural situation right there. So when he says be quiet there, he means only to the Ephesian church and only to the Corinthian church. It doesn't mean in either other place. Well, Paul already anticipates it. He says in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Brother and sister, particularly sisters, this is not us merely saying that. This is God speaking to the Apostle Paul and inspired him to put the correct paradigm back in place. It's not derogatory to women. It's not putting women down. It's simply bringing men and women by being part of the church back to the original plan that God had for men and women as they both submit under the headship of Christ who ultimately placed himself under the headship of God. The clarity and the forcefulness with which Paul instructs the churches about the role and conduct of women in the churches has been the main reason he's been accused by evangelical feminists of, of sexism. Paul was not a sexist. Paul was a biblicist. Paul was in using the scriptures to inform his uh, teaching on what women should be. And when he says um, in Corinthians, as the law also says, he's not referring to a specific law that says uh, they should remain silent. He's saying that the entire Old Testament, if you look at the, at the way the Old Testament has been inspired, we look at the role of men, the leadership of men, the, uh, the, the, the authority God has given men, the entire economy in the Old Testament, it is clear. What about Deborah? Well, what about Deborah? What about a human judge? Doesn't that mean that, well, God makes judges? Well, Deborah being made a judge was a judgment on the nation because the king was a weakling. He was so weak, he said to her, I won't go into battle unless you go with me. He was so weak that he was unable to fulfill his role as a man and lead the nation. And in that case, God called upon a woman to lead. It was not the norm. It was an exception to show that how men had failed the king particularly, in being the leader he was called to be. So do not quote Deborah as an example of why women should be elders and deacons and pastors in the church. Deborah was a very specific case. And she was used so that the king could at least go to battle while she was holding his hand. Sad. But Paul did not forbid them from all forms of teaching. He clearly identifies the correct sphere of teaching for women in the church. Number one, in the church. He says to Titus, all the women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul says, in the church, the older women, the women who are more mature, the women who have experience to teach other women to be home builders and husband lovers. That's what it says. Not only are they able to teach this in the church, they are able to be teachers at home. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. In that same epistle, in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, they from whom you have learned it. Obviously referring to his mother and grandmother. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. 
sister, you have a, a captured audience to teach at home. You feed them, you clothe them, you wake them up in the morning, you provide for their needs, they're not going to run away. No matter how much you discipline them, no how much you correct them, they keep coming back. You have a captured audience. Teach them. And primarily, we see that because of the witness of Lois and Eunice in the home, it was led to the salvation of Timothy. was able to make you wise for salvation. You want your children to be saved? Teach them at home. Ultimately, the final authority of what happens at home lies with the father. But the mother is an irreplaceable helpmeet. Helper in teaching at home what children should know about God, about Christ, about their sinfulness, and about the need for a savior. Evangelical feminism refuses to see serving in her home as fulfilling enough for the Christian woman. She needs to be something more, more than just a wife, more than just a mother. Uh, being a wife and a mother is just not enough. It's a little degrading. It's a little... Uh, unworthy of all that I am able to do and gifted to do. Being a mother and a wife is just not enough. Perhaps you'll be more convinced if you heard a testimony from a woman rather than from me as to why that position is the wrong one to have. Why being a house builder and a mother or a home builder and a mother is at the pinnacle of what God calls women to do. In the book Love That Lasts, Betsy Rikuchi and her husband uh, write, uh, co-authors this book, Love at Last. And in that, she writes this to Christian women. And I quote, Do you want your life to work to really be a life of God-glorifying fullness, fruitfulness? As a wife, mother, and homemaker, I can often reach the end of a day and think, Now, what have I accomplished today that was really worthwhile? No brain surgeries. No deals closed, no conferences, no multi-million dollar profits. Well, I scrubbed the floors. I made chicken cacciatore. I read to the children. I babysat for my neighbor. Here is the biblical answer to that question. Because today's activities have furthered the building of my home, this has been a day which by God's grace I have displayed True wisdom. Women have a great role to play in the church. A role that finds its greatest fulfillment as a, as a Christian, as a mother, and especially as a wife. A role that is executed in a God-glorifying way in the home, the last frontier in the battle against theological liberalism. And once we lose, our bat lose the cause in our homes, we've lost it everywhere. And we lose it in the home, we hand over that the framing of their children's minds to others outside, one day will be shocked when Johnny walks home and says to you, Mommy, I think I am a girl. Beware. It's happened. It's happening. It's coming. And do not be a homosexual uh, advocate. Work against it by teaching your children. And finally, it needs to be demonstrated in the home. A prepositional statement for this. Biblical manhood and womanhood are correctly demonstrated when godly husbands and godly wives seek to emulate Christ and his church through living in a sanctified way in the home. Biblical manhood and womanhood are correctly demonstrated when godly husbands and godly wives seek to emulate Christ in his church and his church through living in a sanctified way in the home. How is biblical manhood and humanhood demonstrated in the home. Husbands and wives commit to a lifelong relationship that reflects the eternal union between Christ and the church. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice both of these phrases, both of these, uh, these, these challenges to men and women, husbands and wives, has a common denominator. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. These two things are successfully uh, carried out, becomes effectual and effective 
only when it's centered around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He needs to be Lord of the home, Lord of your lives, Lord of your womanhood, Lord of your manhood, so that you can effectively, as a husband and wife, reflect what Christ is to the church. The common denominator in all these verses is Christ the Lord. When, man, when God designed marriage for one man who was born a male and one woman who was born a female, <coughs> that marriage was designed as a permanent relationship. Ephesians 5.31 and Genesis 2.24, which it quotes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The indissolubility of the one flesh union between a husband and a wife has long-reaching and serious consequences. It's what the godly household is uh, 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 built upon. When couples quarrel and can't see eye to eye, they break this relationship, this one flesh relationship. The best thing is not to have either of them run back to mommy and daddy. When your wife upsets you, your mother's home is not a place to go to. You have a home. Sort it out. Stay there. You are the priest in that house. You are the, the, the lead in that house. You are the shepherd. You are the one who is responsible. Don't go back to mommy. She's got her own problems with daddy, most likely. When you become one flesh, you left your father, you left your mother. This is primarily directed at the husband. I know that. But it also applies to the wife. The indissolubility of the one flesh union determines how you speak about your wife when she's not there. Ephesians 5.29, verse 28 rather. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Let each one of you, verse 33, love his wife as himself. If you love your wife like you love yourself, you'll never say a bad thing about her. We all love ourselves. We may not want to admit that, but you know how much time you spend on yourself, on your grooming, on your things you like, your hobbies, the things you spend your time on. You devote a huge section of your life to numero uno, me, myself, and I. If you love yourself, if you love your wife like that, she'd be a very happy woman. I promise you. The indissolubility of this one flesh union determines how you speak about your wife and how you speak about your husband when he or she is not there. To wives, let the wife see that she respects the husband. If you respect your husband, as Paul tells uh, the Ephesian church, then you will never speak about him behind his back. When you chirp into your girlfriends about how bad their husbands are, don't add to that chaos. Defend him. Set him up as an example of godly manhood, godly husbandhood. And husbands make it easier for her to do that. She can't do it if you're living a lie at home. <clears throat> the one flesh bond does not mean you are, you are united in a physical way only. It's a bonding at every level. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. When a husband and a wife is bonded in this way... They reflect the bond between Christ and the church. The one flesh union is best expressed again, as I say, by the divine equation. One man plus one woman equals one flesh. The indissolubility of this one flesh union is permanent and death do us part. What man, what God has put asunder, what God has put, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. The common modern trend to keep your own name, to keep our names own surname, to keep separate bank accounts and have no sharing of resources, to plan for divorce before the marriage, you know, we set up an anti-nuptial contract. Well, that's kind of building a back door into a house which doesn't have a back door. All this flies in the face of the permanent one flesh union. The number of divorces among Christian couples is staggering. It is part of the low view we have of marriage as defined in Genesis 2. This lies at the heart of feminism and has no place in a Christian marriage. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man who is a man and a woman who is a woman who both are determined to worship God in a way that he designed them to worship him through marriage. The godly man reflects through manhood in the way he is seen to treat his wife. 
The same can be said of the godly woman as she relates to her husband. Peter clearly addresses this with a husband. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Paul does exactly the same thing when he says to the Colossians, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The call to, to be a husband is a high calling. It's not something we enter into lightly. You as a husband are primarily responsible for the spiritual tone of the relationship you have with your wife. And you cannot be in control of the spiritual quality of your home if you're out of touch with God. That's exactly what Peter is saying. Failure to treat your wife with understanding and honor that she deserves will hinder your fellowship with God, particularly in the area of your prayer life. From there, it's downhill all the way. Out of touch with God, out of touch with your wife, out of touch with yourself as a man who should be living a sanctified life according to God's word. And it's downhill all the way. And it will only stop when, like the prodigal son, you come to your senses and say to yourself, I've sinned before God. Until you get things right between you and your wife, things will not come right by themselves. It's not your wife's responsibility to set the tone for the home by herself. It's primarily yours. And she will help you to get there when you honor her. The wife also has to make an effort to make the relationship of God an honoring one. She has to help her husband get the point where he can praise her and honor her. The world says that men will never understand women because why? Women are from Venus and men are from Mars. Biggest lot of nonsense in the world. According to 1 Peter, it says, Husbands, is the husband required to live with his wife in an understanding way. You make an effort to understand them. It will help the husbands, though, if the wives live in a way which encourages her, him to be uh, loving and kind and understanding. And the one thing we're going to get to in James is how lethal the tongue is. And when it comes to the Genesis 3 woman, this is a weapon on steroids. The tongue is a, is, is a terrible thing. And in the particular case of husbands and wives, it's the one way that a wife becomes a Genesis 3 woman and nags the husband into submission. Wives, it's hard for him to honor you and defend you when you are berating him at home. I'm going to not did you turn to it, I'll quote it to you. The Bible deals with wives who are quarrelsome and naggers. Do you know that? The Bible actually covers that very clearly. So, um, Proverbs 27, 15. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. If you ever sat in a house with a broken down pipe and it goes, dip, 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 it is irritating, infuriating. Proverbs says a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind. To try and bring her under control is like taking oil in your right hand. Wives, you are responsible as the husbands are to set the tone for the home and for your married life. They, the husbands are held responsible, will be held accountable to the judgment seat of Christ, or can you always be the ones upon whom the responsibility lies, but you have a note to play. Today, people see that there is neither male nor female when it comes to marriage. They look at an egalitarian uh, a framework for marriage, where each spouse uh, takes on themselves what they are most qualified to do and then run with that. That's not a biblical framework. They abuse the very verse that they try to use to say that many women are equal, Galatians 3. There's no time for us to cover Galatians 3. We will address that on Wednesday. So please, all of you find a way fitting into Gilbert and J. Jean's house. And we'll deal with Galatians chapter 3. But that has been used, and I just quoted here, it will be part of the question. This is what's used to say, well, there's neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ. Yes, we are all one in Christ. But not in the way we've described this morning. <clears throat> Wednesday, we touch on that. In conclusion, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament manifests the equally high value and dignity which God attached to the roles of both men and women. Both Old and New Testaments also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community. 
God ultimately determines gender, roles, and function. The church is therefore obligated to be subject to God's authority and must, in every way, refuse to allow society's perspectives in these crucial matters. Don't follow the world. Follow the word. Follow Christ. And live for him so that the very life you live as a husband and a wife is an act of worship to God as you glorify him in the way. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we read your word, that we truly may take in what it says. That we may be obedient. This may change our lives and make us men of God and women of God. Make us men who are men and women who are women who truthfully are acknowledging the headship of Christ in their lives and live in such a way that you are glorified and magnified and indeed honored by the lives we live. We pray for this in Jesus' name and for your sake alone. Amen.